Good morning. Good to see everybody. This morning, as we uh, continue looking at Deuteronomy and the theme of remembering God, we're going to talk about remembering God from generation to generation. God never intended children to grow up wild and neglected like weeds that you only pay attention to when they become a problem. I think he created children to be taught and nurtured and shaped. And he's given that job to their parents because parents, uh, nobody cares about their children more than their parents. And parents have the most vested interest in the uh, future of those children. So we're going to talk about uh, just how raising children. And we're going to do a tag team this morning. I'm going to talk a little bit, and Jeff's going to talk a little bit. And as I said last hour, we've never done this before. And we'll probably never do it again because... <laughs> because you get two complete sermons this morning. And, uh, but anyway, I'm gonna talk about parents' responsibility to raise their children, and Jeff's gonna talk about the church's responsibility to raise children, to give us a, a fuller view. So let's pray and, and we'll jump in. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your spirit that leads us into truth. And we want to stop and remember that you are our teacher. And we can't learn anything unless you teach us. We pray you'll speak to us from the scriptures and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at the classic verse on parenting and disciple-making, and that's uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. And so uh, let's read this. Here... O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. One thing we've, we've learned as we've gone through Deuteronomy is that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That wisdom is a result of knowing who God is and responding in faith. And, and so Solomon says the first thing we need to know about God is there is one God. And because there's one God, he deserves our total allegiance. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's wisdom. Foolishness begins with the idea that anything else is necessary for my happiness and well-being. And, of course, the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry is, is ascribing to anything created what we should ascribe to God, depending on it, loving it, obeying it. And so wisdom begins with realizing there is one God and he is to be loved with everything we have. Foolishness begins with there's other gods. There's other things to depend on besides God. How do I know if I love God with all my heart, soul, and might? These words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. The surest way for me to tell how much I love God is how much do I love his word. Why? God is invisible. We can't hear God or touch God. The way we know God is as he teaches us through the Bible. Lori and I were engaged for a year before we got married. It's the longest year of my life. 
And uh, I was living in Berkeley, and she was living in San Diego. And back there, shortly after the earth cooled, um, <laughs> long distance rates were very high. So we communicated through letters, and those letters were very precious to me. Whenever I'd get a letter from her, I would read it and reread it and reread it. Now, if one of my smart aleck roommates would have said, you know, that letter is inferior to Lori, I would say, of course. But at this point, while we're apart, I really can't know Lori apart from her letters. And so they're precious to me. Same way for this time, we can't really know God apart from his word. So if you love God, you'll love his word. That's the idea here. Now Moses doesn't start there, stop there. He says, you shall teach them the words of God diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Now I want you to think about those commands. Who is to love God with all their soul, mind, and might. Everybody, right? Who is to have these words on their heart? Everybody. Who is to teach them to their children diligently? We are. Moses doesn't say, make sure you take your kid to synagogue school every day so the rabbi can teach him the words of God. Or take him to Sunday school so the Sunday school teacher can teach him the words of God. Or the youth pastor. He says, you shall teach these words diligently to your sons, daughters. So this is another place where the word of God is in contrast to our culture. Because our culture tells us that parents are inadequate to teach their children, to raise their children, to shape their children. We need experts. People are highly trained and educated to teach our children because that's something we're inadequate for. And that's a lie. God assigns parents the responsibility to raise their children. And you're raising your child whether you intend to or not. They're going to become like you unless the grace of God intervenes. Um, <laughs> I mean, you think of how many hours of therapy are devoted to undoing the damage of destructive parents, right? So parents raise their children, and so we want to raise them right, right? And that's Moses' point. Well, at Creekside, we begin with the assumption that parents are the primary disciplers of their children. So let's look at this passage a little closer to see what taking God seriously, what remembering God means when it comes to parenting. First of all, remembering God when you parent means focusing first on your own relationship with God. What does the flight attendant say just before the flight takes off? Yeah, buckle your seatbelt, right? <laughs> but after that, they say, if the cabin loses pressure, what do you do? Put the mask over your own face. And then put the mask over your child's face. Why do they say that? You can't help your child to breathe if you can't breathe. Right? In the same way in our relationship with God, children seldom take God more seriously than their parents take the God. 
Parents who take God seriously, not all the time, but parents who take God seriously generally have children who take God seriously. Parents who don't take God seriously generally don't have children who take God seriously. Now, are there exceptions? Absolutely. I was an exception. I grew up in a family which did not take God seriously. We went to church every week, but we never heard anything about God in our home. But through the grace of Christ, I came to the Lord, and I eventually was able to lead both my parents to Christ before they died. So I was an exception to this. And I know other serious Christians who love God with all their heart, who have children who have walked away from the faith. So this is not a guarantee, but in general, this is the way life works. When Jenny and Jeff were little, my great fear was that they would walk away from Christ when they grew up. And I read Proverbs 20, verse 7. A righteous man who walks in his integrity. How blessed are his sons after him. And I saw that it would be my walk with God that would influence their future the most. And I didn't want to curse them. I wanted them to be blessed. And that became a major motivation for me to keep walking with God. Because whether they saw me or not, this verse says that they will be blessed. So loving God by loving his word became our primary uh, uh, strategy for parenting. Now, I know for some of you, this sounds like a bridge too far. You know, you say, I, I know I should read the Bible more. I should obey the Bible. I should memorize the Bible, but I just don't have the time. I just don't have the energy. And besides, I'm a poor reader. I read a chapter of the Bible, and I can't remember five minutes later what I read. Well, if that's where you are, I've got some encouragement for you. One of the things I've discovered, whether it's exercise or work or relationship with God, discipline leads to desire. If you discipline your body by exercising regularly, when you see the difference it makes in how you look, how you feel, your mood, you will begin to miss those days you don't, you don't work out. You started with discipline, but that discipline becomes a desire when you see the difference it makes in your life. One of the things we say is swimming. I swim early in the morning. And my fellow swimmers, we often say, oh, it's so hard to get here. But you never regret coming. You just feel so much better that day that you swim. And that's true of the Bible, too. Uh, what I would recommend is figure out your minimum daily requirement of Bible. And the way you do that is how much time can I spend reading the Bible every day? And if it's five minutes a day, then do that. Then do that. But be regular. Because what you'll see as you do it day after day after day, you'll begin to get to know God better. You'll know the Bible better. You'll begin to sense God's presence. You'll, you'll see him working in your life. And that five minutes will soon become 10 minutes and 15 minutes. You'll get far more out of daily Bible reading than you will out of spending an hour once a week. So just get into the Bible yourself because you can't love God without loving his word. 
Want your kids to love God? We all do. Then love God yourself. That's the most important thing you can do. Does God have disobedient children? He does, and so will we. This is no guarantee, but it's much more likely that your kids will love God if you love his word. So remembering God means, first of all, focusing on our own walk with God, and then second, remembering God means teaching God's word to your children. Moses said, you shall teach them, and that is the words of God, diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Notice, our job is not to make our children love God with all their heart, soul, and might. We can't do that. You can't control your child's heart. But you can teach them the word that has the power to shape their hearts and their minds. Every child needs to be taught. And every child will be taught by someone. It may be their parents, it may be their friends, it may be the culture, it may be somebody else. But the, the destiny of their life will be determined by whether they are taught the ways of God or the ways of the world. And so our job is to teach them the word of God. What do you teach? You'll teach them these words. What do these words mean? Well, when Solomon said it, he meant Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Today, the Bible has expanded somewhat. So our job is to teach the whole Bible to our child. That's why Moses says these words shall be on your heart because you can't teach anything you don't that you don't already know. Now, it's obviously not possible to teach your child the entire Bible before they move out. But the more you teach them, the more they'll profit. What do you teach your kids? Well, when our kids were little, we taught them just the basics. We taught them, first of all, God is your creator. Who made that butterfly? Who gave you blonde hair? Who made the sun? God is the creator and owner of everything. And we taught them that God is good, that all the blessings in their life that came, and to thank God for those things, that he loves us. You can see his love in all his creation by what he does. When they got a little older, we taught them that, that choices have consequences, that your course of your life is not a, an issue of, of luck or or anything else. It's, a, it's a making the right choices and what are those right choices. And then we begin to teach them the Bible itself, the story of Jesus and all these things. That's what we teach. When do we teach them? We never had much luck with family devotions in our house. Um, I would get in the front room and I would announce, now it's time for family devotions. <laughs> and I would sit there by myself. <laughs> And I finally would rustle everybody together and try to just read a short passage of Scripture and tell them what it meant. Four-year-old Jeff didn't want anything to do with it. He wanted to go back to his room and play with uh, Ninja Turtles and He-Man. Seven-year-old Ginny had a, every question in the book that would get us off the track. And my saintly wife would listen patiently, but I could tell she wanted to get on with other things she could do while I was there, and she didn't have to take care of it. So, so family devotions for us just didn't work. But what did work was, the, was what Moses says here. You shall speak of them when you sit in your house, 
when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. We teach our children continually in the course of everyday life conversations. That's the idea here. One thing I used to do with our kids, I, I would make up ethical questions. And we would do this when we were in the car. And I would make up situations of, of what, what's the right thing to do? What does God want you to do in this situation? And they were situations they would face, like uh, you're playing with your neighbor, Betty, and a uh, uh, little girl across the street, little Lynn, wants to play with you. And Betty says, uh, we don't want to play with her. What's the right thing to do? What should you? We talk about things like that. And they began to learn from the scriptures what the right thing to do in situations they would, they would learn themselves. We, we taught them when we, when we disciplined them. Every, every child needs to be disciplined, right? They all do wrong things. And uh, we, we taught them that, you know, the reason you do wrong things is because you're a sinner. So is mom and dad. One of the things what we've noticed in the regeneration testimonies that we use on Wednesday nights is that so many of the people giving testimonies say, well, I was raised in a Christian home, and I thought I had to be perfect. And I think that's not a Christian home. Because Christians are realistic about their sin nature. And they, they are taught, how do you deal with sin? How do you deal when you blow it? How do you do it when you do something wrong? Confessing your sin, asking God forgiveness, accepting his forgiveness from Christ, and moving on. And that's why I tried to tell my kids, confess to them every time I blew it. And the thing, whether it affected them or not, I would apologize to them. We taught them how do you, how do you make peace with your friends when you're how do you resolve conflicts in your family? I remember Jeff saying, "Why do I always have to be the one who apologizes, and nobody apologizes to me?" And that's a good question. We taught them how to deal with fears and and their desires and just circumstances. But everyday life was our curriculum for teaching them to apply the scriptures. How do we teach? Uh, Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. It's not just what a person teaches, but how they teach it, right? I could empty this room in five minutes by teaching the wrong way, by being very academic and, and giving you, you know, big-sounding words and quoting people and stuff like that, and you would all fall asleep or leave. Or I could be very condemning and say, you, you miserable sinners, why don't you get right with God and stuff like that? And we'll say, well, we're leaving and uh, uh, stuff like that. Obviously, I don't do that because there's a right way. And let me tell you real quickly, and then I'm done. Um, here's how to alienate your children. Here's how to get your children not to want to listen to you. Um, I think, first of all, uh, let them know you're repulsed by their world that the things they're interested in, you just can't stand. That's what my parents did. Um, I remember when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan the first time. And uh, my parents said, look at their stupid haircuts. And you call this music? And, uh, and that's why I couldn't take anything I was interested in to my parents because they would just tell me why it was so rotten. So I had two lives. I had my lives with, life with my parents and my other life all together. So we, when we raised our kids, we got involved in the things they were interested in. And, and uh, we watched Simpsons every night. Um, we watched uh, 
professional wrestling. That was a lot of fun. Um, we, uh, I remember when Jeff got interested in music and the first genre of music he got interested in was rap. And so we listened to a lot of rap together and we would talk about it. You know, well, what do you think about that song? And what are they pushing? And stuff like that. What do you think of the lyrics and stuff like that? And, you know, that, that was not good, Dad. We shouldn't listen to that one. So, you know, he learned to discern things. Then we did heavy metal. And I mean, and uh, boy, that was an interesting one. And, and stuff like that. And, and stuff like that. But I, be, I became actually a, a, a appreciative of, of heavy metal then and stuff like that. But the point is, we walked through life with them rather than trying to shield them from life. So that when they weren't with us, they would have the values and the wisdom of how do I deal with this now by, well, I watched what mom and dad did. Does that make sense? Here's another way to alienate your kids. Uh, don't include their friends in your family. Because if you don't include their friends in your family activities, they will begin to say, well, I can be with my family or I can spend time with my friends. And the older they get, the more they'll choose their friends over you. And so who's going to have the greatest influence in their lives? You, your ability to influence their friends is a great ministry opportunity. So include their friends in what you do. Um, lecture them. Act like their therapist. We love people who lecture us, right? And act like our therapist. Don't initiate conversations with them daily. Only talk to them when you're mad at them. That's a, that's a good one. Um, shield them from life rather than experience life together. Um, don't have fun together. And by fun, I mean things they think are fun, not things you think are fun. Things we think are fun are pretty boring. Um, don't keep your promises. Never admit that you're wrong or that you fail or ask forgiveness. Um, Always let other things take priority when, uh, over them and their interests. Value externals like physical beauty or athletic ability that they have no control over. Always be in a hurry. Never have time for them. And make them do things you don't want to do. I hate mowing the lawn. Jeff, go mow the lawn. <laughs> Important things seldom scream for our attention. Isn't that true? And yet when you get to be my age, the most important things to you is you're going to be your kids and your grandkids. So devote the time. All right, this is the peril of having two pastors preach. You're just getting two sermons, okay? Uh, I thought he was going to go short, then he went long. I was like, you're always on time, not me. So I got to hustle up here. So role of parents raising their children, we've seen that. How does the church fit into this? What is the church's role in raising up the next generation? I think as we think about this issue, there's two extremes to avoid. Because on the one hand, you can read a passage like Deuteronomy 6, and you can say, you know what the parent's job is? Discipling their kids. Do you know the church's responsibility? Zero. So parents, do your job. We've done our job telling you to do your job. We're done. Uh, that is crushing for parents. And you know that if you're a parent, because it's hard enough to keep your kids clothed and alive 
uh, much less teach them to grow up and become Saul of Tarsus, right? Like, it, it is a crushing burden to say you are the only spiritual influence in your kid's life. On the other extreme, you can say, no, this is the church's job, especially when my kids become teenagers. I, I, it's me when I'm young, but I lose them when they're teenagers, and that's when we need the youth specialist to come in. We need the really cool person to reach our kids because we can't. When I was a middle school director, I had a church leader come up to me, and I was overseeing middle school ministry, and he said, hey, you know what? Remember, Jeff, the parents are watching you and what you're doing. And I was like, what do they hope to see? Like, I'm 22. Like, I need someone to parent me. Uh, you really think I can save your kids? Um, but there's this expectation, right, that the, the young person, like, it was going to be a periodic 90-minute program that was really cool, an annual summer camp, and just revival was going to break out, right? And all these kids were going to follow Jesus. And, and really, that's wishful thinking, that you can outsource a kid's spiritual development to a youth leader who almost never sees them, okay? So neither of those extremes, I think, reflect the biblical vision. Because according to the Bible, the natural family is supposed to exist in what family? The spiritual family, the church, and ultimately raising up kids as a partnership between parents and the church. You, you see that in the Bible, that it's not simply parents who pass on the faith to children. It's one generation passing on their faith to the next generation. That's why in Psalm 78, Asaph says this, that we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might. David echoes that when he says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And in one sense, that's the book of Deuteronomy, isn't it? You have Moses, the first generation leader. He's about to die. What does he do? He passes on his faith to this entire next generation of Israelites who are going to come after him. It's not just an Old Testament idea. Look at what Paul says to his spiritual son, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1. He says, You then, my child in the faith, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you catch how many generations Paul mentions there? How many does he assume? Four. Presumably, right? You have first generation leader Paul talking to second generation leader Timothy, who's supposed to teach others, presumably a third generation, who can do what? Teach a fourth generation the same thing. The faith has to be taught, and the bridge is from generation to generation. And if it's not intentionally passed on, the gospel will be rejected over time. The gospel will be proclaimed by one generation but only believed by the next generation, assumed by the third generation, ultimately to be denied by the fourth generation. So this is the mission of the church, is to pass on the faith to the next generation. We often say that the church's mission is to make disciples of all the nations, and that's true. But you can't disciple the nations unless you disciple what? The generations. You'll never reach the nations if there's no one around to reach them. And every local church is exactly one generation away from extinction. Which means you can't just punt to parents and say, well, you go do it. No, we do it. And that's my contention from my point in the talk. You know whose job youth ministry is? Everybody. 
It's one generation passing on the faith to the next, regardless of whether you have kids of your own, which means church is always supposed to be intergenerational. Now, that's very countercultural, isn't it? Because this assumes that we as a church are going to be a community that's what? Connected generationally. And do you know what our society is not right now? Intergenerational. We are segregated by race. We're segregated by class. We're also segregated by age. In fact, one scholar has said this is the most age-segregated society ever. Ever. Do you realize that? Vast numbers of young people are likely to live into their 90s without contact with older people. That's new in human history, okay? New experiment here. And you see this mutual repulsion, right? Young people, they want to be with cool people, so they go to urban centers. And then old people begin to hate urban centers, so they move to Florida. And, and people select for communities where there are people like them. And what do you lose? Any bridge between what? The generations. And so now we're at a place where, according to one study, just 6% of people over 60 say they discuss important matters with non-family members under 36. 6% of people over 60 have important conversations with people under 36 outside their family. That's rare. That's new. And of course, the church is not immune from this because there's a temptation living in an age-segregated society to do what? Create lots and lots of age-specific programs, right? So from cradle to grave, we've got a class for you. So you can always be with only people who are exactly your age. Now, I like age-segregated programs. My kids are in them right now. They are segregated so I can focus on you and not on them. There is nothing bad about age-segregated ministry in general. Here's the problem. If everything in the church just mimics the culture, we will look at developing the youth as the job of who? Specialists. It's not my job. Got to find the specialist, and we've got to find the cool youth person. Best TikTok channel. And they've got the best sneakers. And they say words like riz and cap and sus. And I don't know what those words mean, but my kids do. And they're probably mortified that I'm using them right now. But we've got to find that person. And somehow that person can reach the kids we can't reach. And we're going to outsource this. Problem with that is that's just a poverty for kids. They don't need one specialist. They need a generation that wants to pour into them. That's our vision is that one generation would pass on the faith to the next. And all the data say that the determiner of sticky, lasting faith is young people's connection to who? The generation that came before them. It is not awesome summer camps. It is not the best youth program. It is not the killer whatever youth ministry that's so cool and relevant. It is their connection to older people. Barna did the study a few years back, and, and you can't read all this, so you can take a picture of it or whatever, but I'll, let me just summarize it. If you look at that far right category, those are 18 to 29-year-olds who are thriving in the faith. They call them resilient disciples. And you look at the common characteristics of young people today who are thriving in the faith, the overwhelming majority of them can say things like, I feel like I belong in the church. There's someone who encourages me spiritually. I'm connected to Christian community. When I was growing up, I had a multitude of people investing in me spiritually. I admire my parents' faith. I feel emotionally close to someone at church. 
The, the key determiner there is our connection to the people who have gone before us. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's what the Bible says. Okay? So, the data and the Bible agree. Shocker. So, what does that mean for us in terms of our priorities? Four priorities, and then we're done for how we do ministry at Creekside. Now, this is what we've come to based on the Bible, based on the data, and based on 33 years of trial and error and screwing up in a lot of different ways in youth ministry, okay? In saying this, I'm not saying we're the best at it. We're still trying to figure it out. Not trying to rag on what any other church is doing. I don't know what other churches are doing. This is what we're convinced of, and it's all about connecting the generations, okay? Four things, four priorities. First priority is this. This one you already know. We want to equip parents to disciple their children. Why? Because that is the key determiner. Christian Smith says that when it comes to religion, parents tend to get what they are. Here's the reality for you parents. Like when I was a youth leader, the kids I invested in the absolute most, I got 50 hours a year with them. 50 hours a year, right? And that's a lot. You get a couple thousand, okay? You have way more influence than you think, even as your kids get older, to invest in them spiritually. It's just an issue of math, okay? And what that means is we want to help show you how to disciple your kids. We do that every Sunday by discipling you and our group's discipling you, but we also do specialized things. Greg has spent years working on his Essentials of Parenting class, and it's coming up in December, okay? Sunday mornings, and we just walk through. Here are some basic principles for teaching your kids to love Jesus. I encourage you to go to that. We give you simple tools like the Bible Minute that you can sign up for every day, just a way to have a, a short conversation. It's really not a Bible Minute. That's a lie. It's like a Bible 15 minutes. That's how long it would take to, to go through it. But it's just an easy way to have spiritual conversations in your home. We want to provide individualized counseling from our pastors to come alongside you. But again, we want to cheer you on. And again, this is not automatic. It doesn't always work, but it is the way God has set things up. So that's priority number one. Priority number two is this. We want to connect your kids to intergenerational discipleship relationships. That's a mouthful, isn't it? intergenerational discipleship relationships. What do we mean? Particularly when your kids get into sixth grade and then on to 12th grade, our goal is not to connect them to a youth program. The goal is to connect them to a relationship with a godly mentor who will walk with them. And the reason for that is that programs don't make disciples. Programs aren't bad, but they're a vehicle to getting discipled. Who makes disciples? Disciples. The thing that's sticky is your kid's connection to godly mentors who are older. So we do youth discipleship groups. They're age-specific. They're gender-specific. The goal would be that starting in sixth grade, there's a few godly mentors who would walk with your kid consistently from sixth grade all the way through 12th grade. Doesn't always happen, but that's the goal. They would know I had said seven years with someone who read the Bible with me a lot. I will tell you from personal experience, that's what made the difference for me was having godly, older people invest in me, and there were a lot of them. It was Matt Christopher taking me in and out and saying, do you know what animal style is? And I was like, no. And he's like, let me open the door to deliciousness, right? I never knew that. And then he would talk to me about Jesus. It was Steve Demetrius making fun of me and then saying, hey, you should teach the Bible. I'll show you how to do it. It was Brad Bowers showing me that a man could be tough and tender at the same time and how to lead in doing that. It was Brian Nesmith playing devil's advocate with me constantly, <laughs> challenging me to sharpen my thinking. I remember telling him, I'm like, dude, I could beat any atheist in a debate. I remember saying that to him <laughs> in high school. He's like, really? He's like, okay, I'm an atheist. Debate me. 
and he mopped the floor with me, right? Just crushed me. And he's like, maybe you need to get a little smarter in these areas, Jeff. Like, maybe you don't know as much as you think. And it challenged me to grow and sharpen my own thinking. Those kind of guys, that wasn't a program. That was meaningful relationships, guys, investing in me that I take with me for the rest of my life. And so youth discipleships do that. The other kind of goal we have for our kids is that, and this is a challenge to you parents, that everyone growing up here would have at least five adults who aren't their parents investing in them spiritually. That would be the dream that when a kid graduates high school, they can point to five people who aren't their parents who said they made a significant spiritual investment in my life. Now, if you're losing interest in the talk at this point because you're not a parent, here's where you come in. (laughs) Who are you connected to relationally here that you can, I don't know, teach a skill to that you know? Or have coffee with once a month? Or have dinner at their parents' house? And if they have five of those relationships, that's really sticky. And we want to help you form those relationships as well. Here's why, because our conviction is that today, kids are generally way over-programmed and way under-connected relationally. Over-programmed, under-connected. So they've got lots of things to do, but they don't necessarily feel connected to older people who are investing in them. So we're focused here on these relationships. Does that make sense? That's priority number two. Priority number three is this, that we want to involve youth in the larger church body. Uh, Thanksgiving is coming up. You know the kids' table at Thanksgiving? And, 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 and when do you make the transition to the adult table? It's not clear, is it? Like some of you are 22 and you're still waiting. Like, come on, really? Like, I, I know I'm not married yet, but just let me sit at the adult table, right? Like, like when do you actually make the transition? Well, well, here's the challenge in the church. If you focus so much on age-segregated ministry from birth through 18, and the kids' only experience of church has been things geared to them with people their age. They leave. At some point, they leave. <laughs> they walk off, find another church. What are they looking for? Are they looking for a church? No. They're looking for another ministry with people just like them, their age, and they have no idea how to connect to the larger faith family. Does that make sense? So one of our goals here is to make kids feel a part of the whole from a very early age. That means we have kids with us in Sunday morning. You notice that? We don't dismiss the kids before singing or before communion. Why? Because we want them to experience that from a very early age. You're a part of what happens here. And then we're tinkering with middle school, but but in middle school, we'll do some specific programming, but then we want kids to get used to sitting through a Sunday morning sermon occasionally even when they're in middle school. And and middle schoolers, I understand I'm boring. But as you get older, I promise I get better, okay? You'll like me more. And, And it might be boring, but you acclimate a little, you get used to this. The goal is that by the time you are a freshman in high school, you're used to just sitting in church. And that's a normal thing. And maybe by the time you're a junior or a senior, you actually kind of like it too, okay? We want to normalize that. You know why? Not just because the Bible says we're supposed to be intergenerational, but the data say that is a game changer. In fact, in their book, Sticky Faith, Kara Powell and Chab Clark say that that might be the silver bullet for what churches can do is make young people just come to the big service. It's easy. We have to do less, right? It's amazing. So 
we look to incorporate them early. We look to get kids serving early in appropriate ways, serving in kids' ministry as they get a little older, serving as greeters, AV, worship team, all these ways, saying, we need your skills here. Get involved. Kids become members when they're 13 at our church. Is that a good idea? I don't know. But it's, I, here's why we do it. You can be a part of the church while you're still with your family at home and be a significant part as well. We have all sorts of ways of normalizing that. Fourth priority is this. We want to foster peer relationships among youth. Look, I get it. By the time you're 11, 12, friendships become super, super important. And we want to help foster some godly relationships where we can because Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. We want to give space for quality friendships to build So we do fun stuff. I know I haven't talked about fun at all. I don't think we're boring, all right? We do fun stuff. We do monthly socials. We do go to camp. We do go on trips. We do that stuff. But the goal is that you would get connected as a student with some other godly students who you can begin to live life with. But, But I hope what you see from this, and here is my challenge, is that we will never raise up the next generation by outsourcing the next generation to a specialist. Ever. So even if you're not a parent, I'd encourage you, who can I give my faith to who could become a spiritual child, even if they aren't my biological child? Who can I pass on my faith to? Parents, start thinking about the army of people you want to build around you to help you walk through this, because believe me, you don't want to do it alone. We want to do it together. Ultimately, what we want to say as the church is this, what John says in 3 John I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. How would you complete that sentence? I have no greater joy than when I make more money, than when I get to go on vacation, than when I get me time. I have no greater joy. I have no greater joy than when the Niners win, which they need to do today. Here's what the Apostle John says to his spiritual children. I have no greater joy than seeing you who I've invested in walking in the truth of the gospel. That is the delight of my heart. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, nothing gives me more joy than to see kids come to know Jesus here, grow in Jesus here, and then go with Jesus to make more disciples. And when they take off, that is, that is the best. It's the best. And what that means as a parent is this, right? And I'm a parent right now. That's why I didn't give the first part of this talk. I don't want to give the parenting talk right now. I'm in the middle of it. Let my dad do that. Um, uh, This is the gut check for me as a parent, right? Like, even if my kids don't accomplish anything academically, artistically, athletically, even if they end up being weird and socially awkward, they're not going to, but even if they do, even if they struggle to find a career or make ends meet, even if they endure great heartache or loss, even if they, they, they just, they have no worldly metric of success, even if they don't get married even though I really want them to or have kids even though I really want them to, whatever, if they love Jesus, no greater joy. Now reverse engineer that and say, would they know that today about me? That the thing that gives me the most delight in your life is not your report card, not that you're a little better than dad athletically, 
It's, it's seeing your faith grow. That is what excites me more than anything else. Look, I know it's convicting. It's convicting for me. I'm preaching to myself because I'm a parent. And, you know, as I'm listening to the first half of that sermon, there's a catalog of my own failures in there. But, but this is, let's just simplify this for a second. The way we find joy in our kids loving Jesus, how do you do that? You just have to find your own joy in loving Jesus. And find your own joy in being loved by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, go bear fruit. He says, I'll bear the fruit. What do we do? We abide in Jesus. We stay close to Jesus. And Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that you may have joy, and your joy might be what? Complete. So if you abide in Jesus, you will find joy. And actually, your parenting failures become a reason to enjoy Jesus more. Because you say, look how gracious God is to me. He doesn't cast me out. He delights in me. He loves me. He keeps pursuing me. And it just makes me enjoy his patience and forbearance and grace even more. And if you live there, you will enjoy your kids. And what you'll enjoy most is seeing them love Jesus. And you won't approach them with a controlling, relentless, critical, eye of Mordor posture towards them that says you have to be better all the time. You'll say, I enjoy you because you're mine. You're my kid. And what I love most is seeing you grow in the Lord because I know how much the Lord loves me. That's That's the trick But ultimately, I just look at my own failures and I go, man, I have so much to be grateful for that Jesus is merciful and ultimately that he does the heavy lifting here. I I can't save my kids, he can. And and the best I can do is just enjoy being saved. And the more I enjoy being saved, the more I'll invest in my own kids. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. So thank you, God. Um, I know this is going to be a very challenging thing to hear. It's a hard thing for me to hear too. Um, Thank you, Lord, Uh, that for 2,000 years, people have been faithful to pass on the faith. Lord, the reason Creekside Community Church exists today is because of that unbroken chain of faithful people. And and Lord, would we be another link in that chain and pass the faith on? Would we not just assume it or just merely believe it, but proclaim it and live it, Jesus? Jesus that future generations would know. And thank you for your great promise, God, that though you visit the sins of the fathers on the third and fourth generation, you show mercy and love and kindness to the thousandth. Lord, your anger is but for a moment. Your favor is for a lifetime. And thank you, Jesus, that you can work through us and in spite of us to accomplish your good purposes. We trust you to do that. And just thank you for your amazing grace that we should be called children of God. pray in your name, amen.